it really is that cliche of everything going slow motion and it feeling like it happens to someone else rather than you. You've got the American accent, surrounded by guns and yeah. DEA agents. I think I still thought at that point, oh, they're going to send me back home. Fine, slapping the wrist, might have trouble coming back to the States again. Hopefully I'll be home by tomorrow. And they said, you know, you're looking at 25 years and right. a million dollar fine. Hello and welcome to The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. So in this podcast, I'm talking to some of the tech world's most inspiring founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs to discover what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our own lives too. In this episode, I talk to Dwayne Jackson, founder of Cashflow, Subdate and Staffology. After a turbulent childhood, separated from his mum at the age of 11 and growing up in care, Dwayne left school with no qualifications. In between IT contracting and looking for some fast cash, he became involved in his friend's drug trafficking business. And in 1999, at Atlanta airport, he was caught with over 6,000 ecstasy tablets and was handed a five-year prison sentence. On release, he set up as a web developer with support from the Prince's Trust. But... Finding that accounting products such as Sage and QuickBooks didn't meet his needs, he developed a web-based application, initially for his own use. That software became Cashflow, and within 10 years, Dwayne had sold the company for an undisclosed sum, thought to be in the tens of millions of pounds. As you can imagine, Dwayne's is an extraordinary story of adversity and redemption, and he's a huge inspiration to me. I'm sure you'll find him super compelling. Enjoy. Right, I'm going to start with the same question I asked everyone. Can you remember your first entrepreneurial experience, no matter how young you were? Ooh, okay. So I read about people that have done the whole tuck shop thing. I don't remember doing any of that <laughs> at all, and I'm just not that natural entrepreneur that's got all these stories yeah. from when they were kids ducking and diving and making money. So it probably was when I got out of prison in 2002 yeah. that I first remember sort of doing any business-related yeah. stuff. I remember being told I was money-motivated when I was younger, Right, and I remember okay. thinking, you're saying it like it's a bad thing. Sounds <laughs> like a good thing to me, yeah. 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 So you had quite a challenging upbringing. We spend a lot of time when we hire people in our own team really trying to understand what happened to them when they're young and how that drives them to just understand their like, okay. long-term motivations. Do you mm-hmm. remember much of your upbringing before you went to Foster Care? I don't remember a lot of my life at all from sort of before 11, which was the age mm-hmm. I went into to children's homes. So I remember the school I went to and I remember some of my friends, but no sort of specific memories of, mm. of, of, of anything, really. Yeah. Um, and I was never sure whether that was normal or not. Yeah. Was it a big shock going into Care 11? Do you find that people define you by that moment or do you find that as a pivot point for you? Um, not really. I knew other people that had been in care at that age. And when you're 11, 12, and, mm. and that's your life, you don't know any different. Um, Just well, of course you know that you've got siblings at home and other kids at school live at home. Mm. But there was such diversity in family setups. It didn't feel like a big deal to me yeah. at the time. How many other kids were you with? So the first children's home I was in, there's got to have been uh, at least a dozen or maybe even two dozen children. And I then moved to a children's home in Wanstead. And where I kind of settled, if you like, was one in Buckhurst Hill out in Essex. And it would vary from 10 to 20 other kids at any given time. One of those things I do remember from being younger, I must have been six or seven, was... I'd always get my work done before everyone else. I remember one day I hadn't. Everyone else was finished, and I'm, I'm still doing it. And she was like, come on, why aren't you done yet? Um, and we were meant to be copying a page from a book, and instead I was copying the whole book. <laughs> but I was doing, like, 15 pages or whatever it was. Um, oh, so it was that cliche of the kid that wasn't being stimulated enough, so therefore went off mm. and got in trouble because there's nothing else going on. When I was about 
15 and at a school called Brampton Manor in East Ham. I'd stop going in in the morning, so I'd go in for registration and then just go off with my yeah. mates and realised I wasn't getting in trouble for it. No one seemed bothered. So gradually I just stopped going to school. Yeah. So I ended up leaving, literally left school with no exams because I didn't take any. Yeah. yeah. But around that time I was evaluated by an educational psychologist and I was meant to be going to a, a special school to set my GCSEs a year early and there was a, a screw-up between the education department and social services and the school and it ended up just not happening. So yeah. actually you were gifted and bright yeah. enough and yeah. in the right environment. Yeah. Did you pick up the ZX Spectrum at that stage? Yeah, that was with the grey rubbery key. That's one. the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So picked that up with the manual and yeah, learnt to program in basic. So you literally just went through the manual and taught yourself. Yeah, the manual was there. It says ten print hello twenty go to ten. So, oh, this makes sense. This is yeah. good. Yeah, and, and, it, and it sort of grew from there. What do you think you enjoyed so much about that compared to other subjects? So I read a document years later that summed it up for me. It was called the Hacker's Manifesto, mm. and it's a whole poem about the beauty of the board and whatever else. But a part of it is is the fact that. If this thing screws up, it's because I programmed it wrong. Not because it doesn't like me. Not because it shouldn't have been a teacher in the first place. Not because it didn't get laid last night. It's because I programmed it wrong. So it's very black and white and you know where you stand. So I think in that world of where I was moving around so much from different children's homes and different people looking after you, you've got this island of predictability, if you like. Mm. And I think it was that that appealed to me. So you probably had a logical mind. Yeah. And yeah. quite enjoyed the fact that you were in control of it. And exactly. you got direct feedback, I suppose. Yeah, and there was no ambiguity about where I stood, right? It had yeah. gone wrong. It had gone wrong at line 17 yeah. uh, on the last character. Oh, OK, missing semicolon. And we're good again, rather than, yeah, some ambiguous reason that I'm yeah. never going to be able to fathom. So. Yeah, of course. So you are doing this in the care home yep. in your own time. Yep. And then when you actually left school, what was that, 15, 16? Yeah, so 15, 16, I then ended up in an actual foster home. So I was in a family home which I wouldn't call a loving environment, um, but it was comfortable. And I got my first job in a travel agency in Hatton Garden. Oh, well. And I was an office junior. And I remember <laughs> blowing them away on the computer. They said, oh, can you type this up? And it's like, yep, no problem. <laughs> Done. And yeah, blew them away and got offered the job pretty much there and there on the spot. So that was like the first bit of stability, I suppose. Yeah, and, and some income, which was nice. Yeah. And I ended up looking after all the computers there, and I'm 16, 17. I remember saying to Leon, who was the MD, I said, look, I'm on an office junior salary, but... I'm your IT manager, right? <laughs> and it was a seven-person company. It's like, well, I, I don't have the budget for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We you don't might, need you might an IT manager. Yourself. <laughs> yeah. But what he did do, which really set me up, was he said, look, write your CV as if you're our IT manager. Go and apply for IT manager jobs, and I'll give you a reference saying you are our IT manager. Oh, wow. So, yeah, really good of him. And that's what got me into IT contracting. So how old were you then? I would have been 17. And it's like, okay, you've got, so you're going to pay me how much an hour? And it's like over £20 an hour when yeah. I'm 17. And the fact that you're not going to be working a lot of the year, right? Yeah. So I had zero money management skills. So it was really was sort of feast to famine. So yeah. it'd be one month buying my mate's pizza. And yeah. yeah, the next month I'm having to borrow money to pay the rent. I'd go from £20 an hour, £25 an hour, £30 an hour. Mm. And I enjoyed it. There's a variety of work. I like the fact that you didn't get involved with all the politics. You just went and delivered and got paid very well for it. And I remember the last contract I had was at Reuters over at St. Catherine's. Oh, Hall. wow. And this was like £43 an hour. And it's like, this Big is, money. This is yeah. crazy now. Yeah. But that Reuters contract came to an end. Um, because I'd been earning good money, I'd gone to New York a couple of times yeah. and had a girlfriend in New York by oh, this point. Yeah, yeah. I'd grown up around a lot of criminality and a lot of people I grew up were involved with dodgy stuff. So running out of money. Uh, not got another contract, needs to pay the rent, got a girlfriend in New York saying, when are you going to come and see me? And my friend Alan says, oh, yeah, not going next week, I was going to go next week, but I'm not now one of the couriers, let us down. So, so you're saying that you need someone to go to New York and you'll pay them. You'll pay for me, yeah. yeah. Like, this sounds interesting, let me get yeah. involved. So I actually volunteered to get involved with a, yeah. a drug trafficking yeah. ring that I grew up with. 
because the first time you did it and you got away with it the first yeah, time. Yeah, it's what was then called a safe route in terms of the airline industry. This is all pre-9-11. Right, yeah. So you'd go London to New York and you'd just walk through. So yeah. I've done it a couple of times to New York and bringing the money back, more importantly, because... Oh, so you get cash there and then... Yeah, so getting the drug second out, there wasn't too much of a problem for him. It was actually who do we trust to bring back hundreds of cash. thousands of dollars. Is it really that much? Yeah. Yeah, and it's normally in small builds as well, and so, which doesn't help. So literally like a duffel bag full of cash. No, it's all rolled up really tight into tight tubes and stuffed into portable speakers. <laughs> if you remember, you have speakers that you could plug into your yeah. one back then with a battery compartment and all that. So of course, all that was cut out. It's just, yeah, stuffed with money. So 100 grand each trip that we'd be bringing back. So I remember we used to come back out the airport um, and we'd be you, driving down the motorway. I was going to say, you didn't have to wait for a cab. Somebody was there for you. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> the guys would pick me up. And yeah, we'd be unscrewing the speakers in the car, getting the money out. And what's really annoying about it is because it, it's been rolled up really tight, so yeah. you're trying to sit on it to flatten it out. And, of course, it's a bit of fun at the time as well, or it felt like it. But, yeah, it all came crashing down sort of uh, mid-'99. Our customs agent stopped me and, yeah, found a whole load of drugs on me. Mm. And it all sort of unravelled from there. It really is that cliche of everything going slow motion. Right, And, yeah. and, and it feeling like it happened to someone else rather than you. Because you've got the American accent, you're surrounded by guns and yeah. DEA agents. I think I still thought at that point, oh, they're going to send me back home. I'm slapping the wrist, might have trouble coming back to the States again. Um, hopefully, I'll, I'll be home by tomorrow. Mm. Um, and yeah, slowly it dawned on me, you know, you're, you're screwed up big yeah. time. And they said, you know, you're looking at 25 years and right. a million dollar fine. Yeah, scary stuff. What then happened, which I didn't know until later, within hours of me getting arrested, the police in the UK kicked in all of the right doors in East London and very quickly found out we'd been under surveillance for six months. Yeah. So how long were you in the States for? And not very long. So I think about six, seven weeks, um, I got a note passed to me from one of the prison officers that said, call Ben on the London number. And Ben was a guy I'd worked for while I was doing contracting. I'd done bits and pieces for his firm. Mm-hmm. We kind of stayed in touch. I wouldn't say as friends, more as I was doing bits of ad hoc work for him. Yeah. Um, so it was like, why? one, how does he know I'm here? Yeah. Two, why does he want me to call him? Yeah. And it turned out that he'd got wind of it. But he said, look, I spoke to the DEA. They said that it's going to be a year before you get to trial. Your bail is $50,000. If I come and part $50,000, I can take you back to the UK and you have to come back in a year and stand trial. Can't do anything from that point on to help you, but I can at least come and bail you out if you come and work with me and stay at mine for a year. Wow. Are you up for that? Yeah. And of course I was up for that. So you then spent the next year working with him. Yep. And yep. then at the end of that year, did you go back to? So no, what happened? I was the only one caught with any drugs on right. me. Uh, the whole nine of us ended up standing trial. So they really needed me as part of the trial in the UK. Mm. So they arranged what's called an administrative dismissal in the US. So the right. charges there got dropped. Yeah, ben so got his like bail money got traded back. Effectively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I stood trial in the UK instead, um, mm. uh, mid 2000. Yeah. yeah. Stood trial, went not guilty and tried to argue it out, but got found guilty. And because if you go guilty early on, you'll get a discount on your sentence. Right, yeah. And we didn't. So we weren't yeah. looking at no discount. We were looking at 12 to 16 right. years. So when we did get sentence, and I got five years, some, a few of the others got four, someone else got six, and then we were over the moon because yeah. we were expecting a lot yeah, more. So how long did you serve? I served two and a half years. So it was a five-year sentence, and I got out halfway oh, through. Right, yeah. um, when you go to prison for more than a year, you either come out significantly improved well, as a person yeah. or significantly worse, worse and, yeah. and normally with a drug habit. And yeah. Thankfully for me, it, it was better. I do remember the moment as well. It was on Camp Hill, and... I mean, it's so ridiculously petty. It was the mushroom incident is what it was referred to. <laughs> so you only got... You've got mushrooms on your dinner on a Saturday. I like mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was known that when the mushrooms come on the wing, put some aside for Jackson, put them under the hot plate. Yeah. Someone complained, but they were only getting two mushrooms rather than the four they were meant to get. Yeah, because well, Jackson's getting my mushrooms. Well, they didn't know why necessarily. <laughs> so then the senior officer, a Miss Pratt was her name, 
proper kicked off over it and basically if this happens again you guys all lose your jobs you're no longer orderlies if, if food carries on getting stolen but I remember that evening because if we lost our jobs we'd have to change what cell we're in I could go to the library and I wanted the screws to just let me off the wing yeah. to walk to the library it meant I could take a shower and use the phones when other people weren't around so yeah, it was, it was, yeah as good a quality of life as you can as get. good as possible yeah. yeah and this woman had the power to take that away from me just like that um, over this mushroom mm. stuff and I remember thinking how have I ended up in this situation how, have, yeah. how has this happened and it's so obvious with hindsight, right? You, I made a number of decisions, and because of those decisions, that's where I ended up. I hadn't put any thought into those decisions. I just kind of yeah, bounced yeah. around and ended up there. And thinking, well, hang on. If I'm a bit more um, thoughtful, decisive, switched on to what I'm doing, why I'm doing, what decisions I'm making on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, maybe I can then, hang on, I can... You're the master of your own universe. Well, and it just dawned on me. It's like, shit, I can do whatever I want to do. I can end up wherever I want to end up. Yeah. You just got be conscious of the decisions you're taking to try and get there. Yeah. There was a quote I found somewhere that if you don't have a plan for your life, you'll end up part of someone else's plan. And guess what mm. they've got planned for you? Not much. Mm. Yeah. So, so that really kind of summed it up for me. It's like, okay, well, you need to be a bit more aware of what you're yeah. doing with your life. In prison, you're either in education or you're working in industry. Yeah. So, of course, I put myself down for education. Uh, they had a course called CLATE, Computer Literacy and Information Technology, mm. uh, which was the basics of IT. Anyway. So I put myself down for that. It was a two-month course, done it in two days. And she said, well, you're assigned to me for two months, so you're going to have to stay and help. Right. So I ended up helping teach that course. That teacher then got sick. Um, so I ended up basically teaching that course myself for yeah. way over six, maybe even a year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For a long time, I was basically teaching in the prison. A lot of my co-defendants that I went to jail with had moved on to open prison, and I was still stuck at Camp Hill. And... A prison officer took me to one side, Mr Jenkins, he was, said to me, um, why do you think you're still in this prison? You should be in open prison by now. I said, yeah, tell me about it. And he said, do you want to know why? I said, I'd love to know why. He said, right, follow these steps. You leave this prison and go to Ford, which is where you're meant to be now. What gap do you leave behind you? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, who's going to teach the IT course? I said, a teacher. Right, and that's going to cost the prison at least 30 grand a year. Right, you so leaving you, this you prison will afford. cost 30 grand a year. Stop teaching and you'll get moved. So I said to her, I don't want to teach this course anymore. I'd rather be just locked in my cell all day. So I got moved back off of education, reallocated back to the wing. Um, and within a couple of months, yeah, I got moved to Ford. Wow. So I'd worked for Ben for a year while mm. I was on bail. I didn't get paid anything while I was there. But he said, look, I can't afford to pay you anything. But he said, oh, I'll give you 20% of the company, so you've got something to look forward to when you get out. And when I was at Ford, two things happened. You have a better class of criminal mm. than Ford. So there were solicitors and whatever. I said, oh, right, yeah. to me. And they said, yeah, this yeah. is basically what's called a, an option, yeah. right? And, and yeah, it's, it's not really worth the paper it's written on because this, this and that. So I called him up and said, I've been sold this. And he said, oh, yeah, no, it, no, they're kind of right, but the lawyers made me do it. I'll get it changed for when you yeah. get out. And at the same time that he was saying he'd get it changed when he get out and never did, the Prince's Trust came and gave a talk at the prison about their enterprise programme. And it's like, you mean I can start a business, my own business, when I get out? And it just hadn't occurred to me I was allowed to go and start my own business. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, when they said, well, you can come out and be self-employed and we'll support you and help you to do mm. it, it's like, oh, okay. So I started writing a business plan, I think, the following day. And yeah, got out of prison and went straight to the Prince's Trust to get help to start as a one-man web developer. Wow. And just building websites for people. Yeah. And it grew from there. But where I struggled was with the bookkeeping and it became a bit of a mess. I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I spoke to the other Prince's Trust business on you, and they said, no, we're doing the same as you. Right. Oh, okay. So I knocked something together for me to use. Mm. And because I was a web developer by this point, it was web-based software. Yeah. I built it on, yeah. on the back of a, a website that I had. And again, for a Prince's Trust, they put on a lot of good talks, general business talks. And one of them was the difference between uh, selling a product and selling a service. 
And when you're selling mm. a service, the only way you can scale is you either bring in other people, you've yeah. got a lot of management overhead, or you up your hourly rate, because um, there's only so many hours in a day, but then there's a limit on that. What you really want to be doing is selling a product, because then you can make money in your sleep. And this makes a lot of sense. What could I possibly build? And then realise it is under my nose, right? This bit of software that yeah. I built just for me, that actually other people need this, and it grew from there. It was going to be called Lolly Mate. <laughs> uh, it was going to be called Spondoolies. And oh, we realised right. no one knew how to spell Spondoolies. <laughs> and I remember talking to uh, someone at Princess Trust, a lady called Rachel Rickards, who said, great idea. Give the name a bit more thought. Yeah, it's a bit niche. Yeah. <laughs> so you came up with cash flow with a K. So you realise you got a product because all the other Princess Trust community go, oh, yeah, I could use this. Yeah. So you know you got demand. You've built it for yourself so it, yep. it works yep. so you start selling it back to the same people in the Princess Trust yeah carrying on working on it sell it back to them around the same time I joined forces with another Princess Trust business a guy called Satiris uh, he was an SEO expert right. and I was a web developer and we had a mm. lot of common clients so it doesn't make sense for us just to combine and have a bigger business mm. so we had a, a two person company at that point mm. which cash flow was one of the things it did but there's also web development yeah. and SEO clients cash flow wasn't bringing in it was like maybe 100 quid a month or something right, like yeah. that I mean, it was very, very early days. The company was fast running out of money. I didn't want to do any of the commercial stuff. I was happy being a techie. He yeah. was the CEO. I was the, well, it wasn't even a CEO. It was an MD. We didn't yeah, have CEOs really, in the UK in yeah. 2003 or four. Was... And he was like, oh, and I said, but mate, we're going to run out of money in three, four months. No, no, it'll be fine. Leave it with me. Leave it with me. And we ended up completely screwed. Out of money. A 25 grand loan from the bank that we couldn't afford to repay. And actually, he'd done a very gentlemanly thing. Look, let's go our separate ways. One of us takes the core business. One of us takes this cash flow thing. And in the end, he said, you know what? I'll sign everything over to you. If you take on that debt, and of course, you can just fold the business, and he knew this. You can yeah. fold the business and walk away from the debt. He said, this cash flow's probably got potential. We do uh, an agreement where I get X percent of the profits of it in the future. I'll sign everything over to you. Mm. And he did, mm. um, which actually he could have been an arsehole. I said, you know what? I'm sitting on my 50%, yeah, yeah. And, and who knows what would have happened. Yeah. But also around that time, I'd met Lord Young at a charity event. Yeah, it was that um, through the Prince's Trust as well? Uh, it was a spin-off charity called London Youth Support right, Trust. Yeah. And he'd shown an interest in investing and then gone very quiet. And what had happened, I only found this out after, was Lord Young thought, mm, I like this Dwayne guy, this serious guy less so. Yeah, He's, I don't want to get myself in the middle Exactly, of yeah. and, and especially because of the Prince's Trust connection as well. So once Satirus had disappeared, I got in touch with Lord Young. I said, look, I own this thing 100% now. If you want to have a chat, let me know. And yeah, very quickly, Lord yeah, Young was my yeah. business partner and mentor. Wow. So, that yeah. must be like two worlds colliding, isn't it? Oh, big time. Yeah, 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 massively. Yeah, the, the Lord and the ex-con, definitely. <laughs> Up to yeah. mischief again. Yeah, but it, it solves so many problems just having his name associated because I'm trying to sell to accountants. And they're like, well, who are you? Yeah. This company's only been around since XYZ. I've pulled your accounts. It looks like you're in a bit of a mess. Yeah. Before I do any business uh, with as you. As all accountants do. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah, they yeah, yeah, they can't help themselves. Right. But all of a sudden, when your Lord Young is the 50% shareholder, oh, no, you're fine, carry on. Mm. They stop asking questions. So, do you remember like the stages of development? When did you hit like five people? So, if you were to plot our growth, right, either in number of customers or revenue or or headcount, there's no exciting jumps in it. It's just, just steady, smooth, yeah. steady, grow, grow, Pure grow, sense. grow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and no exciting. I mean, there were no exciting lumps in the graph. There were, of course, exciting stuff along yeah. the way. So, again, Prince's Trust event. So, by this time, we were doing something interesting in technology space. Mm. So, it was a good name for the yeah, yeah, and, a, yeah. and a success story already at that yeah. point, really, for what the Prince's Trust can do. So, I got put in front of a lot of potential donors, including Bill Gates, yeah. various other people over the years. Will I Am, yeah, met all sorts of Elon Musk more recently. So, I met a whole bunch of people through the Prince's Trust. But one of the benefits was people in the IT industry I got to meet. So, Alex Van Sommeren, who mm. you, you may know is around the sort of the P world in Cambridge, was mm. arranging a dinner yeah, for some donors. 
And someone he had on his radar was Mike Jackson from Elder Street, mm. who'd previously been chairman of Sage. Yeah. Um, so he thought it'd be fun to put us together. Mm. And basically Mike Jackson offered to buy the business of me. Uh, and for how two many million quid. What did the business look like then? We were probably doing ten grand a month. So he's buying still basically the product rather than the business. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. And spoke to Lord Jung and he's like, Look, if you want to sell to him, I'll support you and do whatever I need to do, either sell my shares, roll over. But yeah. actually, here's another option. Let me give you a hundred grand as a loan, interest free, pay me back if and when we ever sell this company, and mm. let's just knuckle down and grow it. And went that route. And so you took a little bit of money off yourself? Well, it wasn't even money off the table. It was just a, a, a very soft, friendly, personal loan. Oh, right, OK. How did that money make you feel differently about either the business or risk appetite, how you grew it? So, yeah, on the one hand, I realised, hang on, I've got something that someone is, mm. thinks is worth two million quid. Therefore, on paper, I'm now a millionaire, yeah, at least, if nothing else. <laughs> now I can pay off the double glazing loan that I've got or wherever yeah. it was at, at that point. So, yeah, it certainly helped me, me focus on the business rather than worry about um, costs at home and stuff like that. And definitely. you realised... I've got something here. Something, yeah, yeah I've got exactly. something of value. Yeah, yeah, something to be cherished. So how long's the time between you meeting Lord Young and then you receiving the two million offer? So out of prison, end of 2002, mm-hmm. started business 2003. 2004, five, it was cash flow. And 2006, Lord Young getting involved. 2007, eight, maybe, the two million offer. Yeah. So only two years on from that. And we actually went through a formal process of trying to sell the business. Yeah, I'd happily took five. Yeah. So I bought in a formal M&A firm to run a process to sell it. And Lord Young had advised you to do that, didn't he? Yeah. Um, well, he was very supportive of whatever I wanted to do. He'd rather yeah. I stuck with it and grew it, but he could understand yeah. why I wanted to be fine. I'll support you in doing that. And found the M&A firm for me and whatever yeah. else, made the introductions. Spoke to so many people, and that's when I realised two things, right? One, I thought I was finding somebody, big company in the industry, that can come and show me how to do this properly. Right, yeah. So you guys are can clueless yeah, yeah. I know that's one yeah, yeah exactly but also I met a guy called Subra Ayer through that process yeah. who founded Webex sold it to right, Cisco yeah. for hundreds of millions and he said look I'm not interested in the business but I like you and I remember that summer uh, and it must have been yeah 2010 I spent a lot of time drinking coffee with Subra um, and him saying look you get a lot of credit for how well you've grown this business with very little capital mm. but that's not the real miracle the real miracle is you have no C-suite so, what's the C-suite yeah like, well, your marketing, your tech, your 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 everything. You're ahead of everything. Yeah, and this is why you're not enjoying your job. Your job mm. isn't the CEO's job. You're doing everyone's job. Yeah, knackered. Build a good yeah. team around you. Yeah. You'll have a more solid business, and you'll be able to. You've got the vision. You know what you want to do. You're just not able to do it. Um, so that's such good advice. So walked away from the sales process. Um, grew a team around me. How was that building the team? It is difficult, and made the mistake early on of bringing someone in. And, and it's all, all the cliches are true, right, of the hire slow, fire fast. And, yeah. and we've done it the wrong way around. He wasn't the right person. <laughs> yeah. He was terrified by the speed at which we did things. Wow. And because I got burnt, if you like, by that experience, um, I was reluctant to bring in outside people again. We then got an offer. Uh, mm. So all of a sudden, one of the firms uh, that said they weren't interested in the, when we done the process, all of a sudden, yeah. we're not going to door saying, can we have a chat? Like, no, 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 I'm focused I've on growing the business. Yeah. But then I said, no, we want to give you seven and a half million quid for it, basically. Okay. Like, okay. okay. So I went and, and, and met with the then CEO. It's a firm called Exact over in Holland. Mm. Um, a public firm at the time. And I said, look, I like the number. It's at, at the bottom end of what I'm, <laughs> I'm comfortable with. <laughs> so I'm tempted to walk away. But you know what? If we can do seven and a half, and after due diligence, you don't try and knock it down by even a penny, let's do a deal. They got stuck into due diligence. I brought in a, an external CFO that I knew well, Rob Carter, who's sort of well-known around the startup community in London, tech startups. So we're going two weeks before signing. I've made an offer on a house. Mm. I've got to get this deal done now, right? Yeah. And he says, have you looked at clause 13.2? And I said, I've looked at all of them. Mm. What about 13.2? He says, look, what this is essentially saying is that the day the deal closes, 
you will owe them 700k. So they're effectively reducing the price by 0.7 yeah. million, even yeah. though they're not calling it that. So I got into the office and their guys were there. I said, look, what's this with calls, whatever it was? And they explained that. I said, that, that's, you know, that, I'm not happy about that. And actually the M&A guy, we said, this needs to get sorted out before we move on to any of the other points. Yeah. This is an important point. I said, actually, no, yeah, you're right, it is. And I said, you're going to have to get Max, your CEO, on the phone because I've told him if you move yeah. the price, yeah, we're you're out. essentially moving the price. So I remember stepping outside my boardroom, they're having conversations in Dutch. We go back in. There's a guy called Jeroen, who's their chief counsel, who no one's ever said no to in his life. He's got a real air of authority about yeah. him. Really, really nice guy. But yeah, you don't say no to him. And he says, oh, I've spoke to Max. Max says, it has to stand. If, if you don't agree to it, then it's a showstopper. So I said, all right, let's stop the show. Yeah. Open the door, <laughs> kick them out of my boardroom. Yeah. And I don't know what was going through my head, how I was going to tell my <laughs> wife. So I just walked away from the seven and a half million pound deal. Yeah. It collapsed there and then. Wow. Because I wasn't willing to move on this 700k. Yeah. So this was in 2010? Yeah. Uh, so this was uh, 2011, I think, yeah. halfway through. So Lord Jung's now mid-80s, so he was late 70s at the point, yeah. at that point. And he, a few weeks later, was having lunch with his best friend, who happens to be Natey Kirsch, yeah. uh, South African property billionaire. He was in the middle of buying Tower 42, which he now owns. And Lord Jung was telling Natey this story. And Natey says, well, why does Dwayne want to sell? Is the business not going anywhere? And he said, oh, no, the business has got a lot of potential. Mm. Dwayne just wants to de-risk, take some money. He said, send him in to see me. Now, bear in mind, at this point, I'd done a beauty parade of 10 different companies, oh, yeah. Yeah. done all this crap with Exact, spent half an hour chatting to Natey at his flat over at St. James's or wherever it was. He'd agreed to give me a million pounds personally. Um, it, was, it wasn't enough to make it interesting for him. So he also bought some equity from my sister-in-law, who had some uh, equity at that point, mm. uh, and put some money into the business so it was worthwhile for him. At mm. the same valuation, the seven and a half that Exact yeah. could have bought from. And that really did change my perspective because at that point I had, in my eyes, fuck you money. Yeah, um, and, and I was then really focused on growing the business. And Lord Jung actually said, look, no more talk about raising money, no more talk about selling. Knuckle right. down, stay laser focused on the business. And that's when Raj Patel came knocking. Oh, okay. He'd run exact, funnily enough, pure coincidence, uh, the company that I had the falling out with. And he emailed me and a few others, say, hey, interesting business, you're up for a chat. And I was the first to reply to say, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, so now he's interested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well... Let's meet up anyway, because I'm, I'm down in Brighton. Nick, okay, fine. So I went and met with him at the Hilton in Brighton, got outrageously drunk on whiskey, um, and explained the situation to him that, look, I've just taken this money. I'm very laser focused now on growing the business. Even if I did want you involved, I can't. And Raj says, I tell you what, let me come work for you for free for, for three months. Oh, at the end of the three months, if you want to hire me and we want to do a deal, it will involve equity. If you want to, we can. Um, otherwise, I'll walk away. Really not a problem. But I think we'll have some fun for three months. And mm. some of the stuff you've just been complaining about, I know how to fix that really yeah. quickly for you. Okay. Well, so I can't you, say no so to yeah, that. So you've got an adult in yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. And the main... Well, he's done a lot for me over the years. But the main realisation early on was helping me and my then team realise, yeah, we're screwed up as a company. Yeah, we're dysfunctional. But you know what? There's a name for what you are, and it's this. And actually, here's some, a study from one of the big Bain and Co. Whatever. That yeah. You're actually, the, and we looked at it's like, it's actually, there's a name for what we are. Yeah, it's yeah. like having a disease and then yeah. finding out there's a name there's for a this. Cure. And actually, there's, there's a, a cure. cure. Yeah. And he helped guide us through that and really sorted out the business and, yeah, really helped get it in, a, in the right direction. And very shortly after, within a year or so, I guess, um, business firing all cylinders. And our revenue was only at two and a half, maybe three million. Yeah. Probably approaching three million ARR at yeah. that point. And got an offer from Iris um, that was 
already a reasonable number. Uh, then Raj got involved and helped negotiate it upwards. And Lord Jung said, that's a great number, but it's not going to happen. So mm. which means said, no one's going to pay that for this business. But and then from the PE world, when you look mm. at how much they were paying for us, what our revenues were, the multiplier on Iris at the time, the premium paid for software as a service, mm. whereas Iris was all desktop at that point, it made perfect sense for Iris mm. to pay. Mm. Iris could have played double what they yeah, paid. It, it still would have made sense. So actually, it was a really good deal for everyone involved. So that was October 2013, uh, wow. Iris acquired Cashflow. Yeah. And so when you sold to Iris, was it clean break? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So Phil Robinson was running it at the time. We're very different in terms of style and we're very grown up in looking at each other in the eye saying, we're not going to work well together, are we? No, yeah. we're probably not. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's make the business work at yeah. least. And by this time, I had a very good management team. Yeah. So really didn't have much to do anyway. So it's like mm. a six, eight week handover and walked away from it. Mm. And how did you feel? It's weird when you've got this thing you've been striving for for so long, the financial side of it, right, of having mm. a ton of money where you never have to worry about money again. Overnight, you get the, as one of my staff said, you're not the CEO anymore, I ain't got to laugh at your jokes. That isn't even funny, <laughs> mate. It's like, really? <laughs> so brutal, overnight, brutal. Yeah, Yesterday's man. Exactly. That's part of the culture. We were very open and direct yeah. there, mm. which didn't fit in so well with Iris at the time. But, Yes, yeah, so overnight, you've, here's all the money and sod off, we don't need you anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you get up tomorrow, there's no job for you to come and do. Yeah. You, you are not needed. Yeah. That took some getting used to, certainly. Yeah. And since then, you've been building up small businesses. So I built something called Subdate, which was a shareholder mm. updating tool. Mm. So Lord John wanted to update every month on where the business is. Mm. Um, and it's quite easy. New email to Lord Jung, subject, February update. And you just got this flashing cursor. It's like, the customers over there need yeah. me and they need me to help out with it. Yeah. And, and I've got to do this up. Where do I even start? And one of the things Raj helped with was getting a process in place right. for that. It's like, why are you even writing the update? Your CTO, they need to write an update. Yeah, and you, can you top read and tail it. it. Top and tail it, exactly. Mm. So make it easy, make it predictable, make it repeatable, make it an easy process. So I built some software specifically yeah. for that. And part of that was, well, I, I was CEO, I had a good management team. What am I actually good at? What did I enjoy? And what can I actually, it's the product and the technology, I actually enjoyed that. So building this update was me getting my skills back up to date, having a product to play with, and you're getting an exclusive here, right? So when Cashflow was sold to Iris, the numbers weren't disclosed because Iris were probably embarrassed about the yeah. number they paid. Yeah. When I sold this update to Crowdcube, mm. their first, and I think so far only acquisition, right. uh, the numbers weren't disclosed because I was embarrassed how little I was getting <laughs> for it. The reality was by that point, I'd honed my tech skills on it. It was, it was a nice product. People kept saying, how's your startup going? And I was like, well, no, it's not a startup. It's, it's just a little project. project. Yeah. But I'd had coverage in TechCrunch and whatever else. Oh, right. And everyone's like, yeah. Yeah, so it was my thing. But then I've got this idea for this payroll thing that I want to go and build. Right. But I know the question's going to be, what happened to your last thing? Yeah. So Crowdcube had been looking at it, and I said to, to Baron, I said, look, can you take this off? And he's like, well, not really. But it's interesting tech for you, right? You could, oh, no, we can make use of it. We're not going to yeah. pay you any money for it. I think it sounded like 10 grand. It was, yeah, it was yeah, something yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Just, and then, of course, there's the, the narrative is then that's sold. written up in tech. Yeah. Sold, full Job stop, done. line under that. What are you doing next? Funny you should ask. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. this payroll thing I'm working yeah. on. So the yeah. payroll business, that was Starfology, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and you sold that to? To Iris again. again. Yeah. yeah. And that was about 18 months ago? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, December, year before last. Yeah, and so you've done a year transition for them. Yeah. the last time you were out the door weren't you yeah exactly yeah, yeah, this, was, this time yeah. you stayed actually I was at the point where my wife said it to me she's like if you sell this what are you going to do with your time yeah. or as Lord Jung used to say his wife said I married you for life not for lunch <laughs> so that's what Lady Young says to him um, so I had that ringing in my ears 
I'd also just had a very good exit from a brief HR, HR yeah. SaaS yeah, company I was well. involved in, done very well Amazing. from that. So we're sitting pretty. Yeah. So I didn't need to do the deal. So I said to the guys at RS, I said, look, happy to do the deal, but, and you're not going to believe this, I don't expect you to believe it, I do want to actually come and work there. Yeah. Because I, I like the idea of the challenge of, of working yeah, how to operate together. there. Yeah. So we're now at that point where I've done that, I've learned a hell of a lot, I've yeah. pissed off a lot of people because of the way I work. So yeah. I think I've upset a lot of people without even realising it. So a lot of the stuff I learned when Raj came in, so at Cashflow, he's coaching me to be a CEO. Mm. And that whole realisation that in terms of your management style, you've got one end you've got highly consultative, the other end you've got dictatorial. Yeah. You will naturally be one or the other. Yeah. I'm naturally very dictatorial. dictatorial. Yeah. How did you guess? <laughs> I think a lot of entrepreneurs are. But if yeah. you're aware that there is a spectrum... At least you can move along it. Exactly. Mm. And I'd kind of lost sight. So I'd, I'd become a half-decent CEO in the last mm. year or so at Cashflow. I'd lost sight of that. Yeah. And over the last year, picking up something again, I said, actually, you need to know when to tone that down mm. um, and, and when to consciously move elsewhere on, on these dials of how mm. you're behaving. And not always made a success of it. So um, you're enjoying that? I'm enjoying the challenge of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like, of the, okay, yourself. this is how it works in yeah, a big yeah. company. I can't just stomp around. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And also how they manage product and why do you end up doing some of the stuff you end up doing? And some of it you walk away from and you go, well, that's just batshit crazy. Yeah. And other stuff you walk away from and go, okay, no, that's interesting. And you can apply that elsewhere. Mm. So if you were to ask me where do I see myself in a year, I haven't got a clue. Mm. There's potentially stuff at Iris I can do but it's more whether they can stomach me. <laughs> um, so it's very different, but interesting. I liken it to um, a big train set. They've got a big train set yeah. there, and some of the bits don't run as smoothly as I think they could or should, yeah. and I'd love to help play with them. And there aren't too many other companies... With that much kit. Yeah, with that much kit. Yeah. There's probably two or three mm. um, in the UK that have that kind of stuff where I think I can be useful. Mm. Mm. Whether I can or not is another matter. Yeah. But yeah, in, in my head, I, I know how to do some of this stuff slightly different way super stimulating yeah I'll go ask if you wrap up quick fire questions if that's right. yeah go for it so you got a favourite book Ooh. yeah and, and it was the right book for me at the time now it feels a little bit juvenile but for me a book that I think really helped me sort myself out financially so this is just before I got the, the loan from Lord Jung yeah, from- Rich Dad Poor Dad uh, Richard Kiyosaki right. and the subtitle of Rich Dad Poor Dad is what the wealthy and middle class teach their children about money that the poor don't Oh, uh, so okay. coming from the background that I did, it's like, okay, yeah, it's really well, maybe relevant. there's some stuff yeah. I need to learn. And there was, and there was a lot of really useful, and I can't remember any specifics of it now, but I just yeah. remember at the time and for years afterwards thinking... It resonated. And sort yeah, of, yeah, it resonated, and it felt like that was a turning point in my financial life, reading that book. And about the most inspirational person? You- for me, it's Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, because of the size of the stuff he takes on, Yeah. I mean, this is changing humanity, the stuff mm. he's doing. Mm. And I was lucky enough to get to spend some time with him a couple of years ago now. So the irony is, right, he blew up on Twitter a few times over the last few years, as yeah. we've seen. And then he said, I think it was on the, the, is it the Joe Rogan podcast. Show, yeah, when he was on there. It, it said some ways, like, look, I, I've done this, I've he? done that, I've, I've sort of, the, yeah. the electric, and you expect me to be a normal, chill guy. Yeah, well, Come on. Yeah. But, but actually, when I met him, he was fairly yeah. chilled. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Although, interestingly, he was with Tallulah Riley, who had his wife, so it was actually an event she was at and she mm. brought him with her, who he'd already divorced and paid tens of millions to. Now he was about to remarry her again. So, yeah, maybe not so normal and chill. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. What's your advice to a founder or an entrepreneur? Cash mm. is king. It's a mm. cliche, but it's mm. bloody true. Keep an eye on it. Higher, slow, fire, fast. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Mm. Mm. So all of that, yeah, the cliches are true for a reason. And, mm. and don't dismiss stuff because it's a cliche. Think about why is it a cliche and how you can apply that in the business that you're, you're growing and you're running. And the other thing I see happen time and time again was I said earlier that 
when I went to sell the business and went to speak to the grown-ups, the big guys, yeah. for them to show me how to do this properly. Then we're clear. Yeah. <laughs> you know your business and how to run your business better than anyone yeah. else does. Crane, you've been a superstar. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Incredible. Dwayne was phenomenally candid about both his journey and about his personal strengths and weaknesses. It wasn't just your average difficult upbringing. For him, it was care homes to foster care to school changes and no formal qualifications. And to most kids, this world wouldn't have made sense. But through all this disruption, Dwayne stumbles upon coding, logical language, where inputs lead to outputs and where the seeds are sown for his entrepreneurial journey. This defines all of his key life moments, from mushroom gate to simplifying paying bills and collecting cash, to scaling his business through to sale. These all demonstrate this clarity of thought. Many founders struggle when they exit because their business defines them and it gives them purpose. Duane, however, reverts to logic, the coding rules. You build businesses to a certain value, you exit and you create wealth, and now you are defined as successful. And you now have the freedom to pursue what you're interested in and you have nothing to prove. And I think that's why Duane comes over as one of the most content people I've ever met. If you enjoyed listening to that conversation and want to hear more inspiring stories, then you can search Tenzing on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode, and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or on Instagram. Bye for now.